You're listening to Kiss My Aesthetic, your go-to podcast for bragworthy branding, marketing, and entrepreneurship advice. I'm your host, Michelle Winterstein of MKW Creative Co. Let's dive into the episode. Greetings and welcome back to the Kiss My Aesthetic podcast. I'm really excited to have Christian with us today. Welcome, Christian. Thanks very much for having me. I'm really excited. Oh my gosh, so excited. It's dark where you are. So I have to ask, where are you podcasting from today? I am calling in today from Istanbul in Turkey. Oh my gosh. Okay. We're really spanning time zones here. (laughs) Yeah. It's 11 o'clock. So it's a nighttime podcast. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Wow. So late. We definitely could have recorded earlier. It's noon for me in California. So this is quite the spread. No problem. And you're also a podcast pro. So this is going to be a great conversation. You said you've done quite a few this month, but for anyone who doesn't know you yet, can you tell us who you are, what you do and who you help? Sure. My name is Christian Hansen. I'm the founder at Slow. We're a slow fashion startup. You may have maybe seen my face on TikTok. That's my primary platform where I started accidentally a slow fashion revolution. And uh, about a year ago, I uh, accidentally bought a pair of women's jeans at a thrift shop. And I made a video about them very frustrated because of their lack of pockets. And with said lack of pockets, I accidentally started a revolution of people who were like, yeah, this sucks. And so since then, basically, I've spent the last year flying around the world making jeans that have pockets and you know, slowly but surely chipping away at my ultimate goal of fixing the fashion industry and trying to make it more sustainable. A very, very worthy mission. Can you give us the context of what slow fashion means? Because it is kind of that buzzy term or things that maybe you hear that people don't totally take the time to understand. What's your like Cliff Notes version of explaining the fast fashion versus slow fashion kind of contrast? Sure. So, I mean, slow fashion really typically is made with purpose. And I would say that's really the big difference. Fast fashion garments are produced with no seller in mind other than kind of the hope to sell things. A fast fashion company, their goal is to put out consistent collections over and over and over again. They're totally guesstimating on how many they're going to sell. And, you know, maybe they make 100,000 pairs of jeans and they hope they sell through. Most of the time they don't. Whereas most slow fashion companies, they're made to order or they're taking customers and they specifically, everything that is made is already, you know, has a home or that it's going to. And so at its core, that's kind of the difference. And then at every stage, slow fashion companies try to do things a little bit more sustainably and with the planet in mind. Whereas fast fashion companies, typically the goal is to try and produce as quickly as possible and as many things as possible. Is your background fashion? How did you actually get started doing this stuff? Let's kind of rewind the clocks and take us to the beginning. I know you said you have the TikTok that went viral on accident, but I can't imagine that maybe that there are some links to your background there. I was a hockey player. Okay. So uh, I had nothing to do with fashion, to be completely honest. It had always just kind of been something I was interested you know, in, but also never really saw myself going into. But yeah, I mean, after my hockey career ended in injury, as most of them do, I was looking for something to do. And I had always wanted to kind of be an entrepreneur. I thought I was going to end up in tech. That's way more of my background. And it kind of just happened by accident. I had a friend who was in fashion. They wanted to make it more fashion tech. I brought my skills. They brought theirs. And it kind of snowballed. And I've been kind of on this serial entrepreneur journey from one startup to the next, to the next, to the next. And you know, slow is kind of my furthest distance so far into the realm of startups. 
startup world is crazy. Having been on the designer side of things, like there are always so many problems you can't anticipate being a problem. It's very hard to prepare for. I feel like you have to have a certain amount of fluidity. Like you got to be ready to roll with the punches. What are some of the bigger lessons that you feel like you've learned from your startup experience specifically that you never in a million years thought you would have to learn or have to know how to do? I could talk for an hour on that one. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone goes into like PTSD mode. They're like, oh God, how deep do I want to (laughs) go? Maybe tell us like a a quick one. Yeah. (laughs) I would just basically break it down to, I never expected to need to just know so many random skills. You hear a lot about startups and, you know, the big joke of, you know, startup founders, you have to wear many hats. That's the understatement of the century. And there is no one that is standing there with a life preserver. It's just like the amount of things where I'm like, I feel like I'm totally competent and capable. Wow, you know, I have a great education in this, this, and this. And then you Google everything. And you have no idea what you're doing. And I don't think, you know, that's not what anyone ever tells you when you hear about the stories of the jobs and the Bezos and these. No one ever says they had no idea what they were doing the entire time. No one ever starts with that. They always say, well, they started from their garage and they did their thing. They had the vision. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The big dramatic vision. I have no idea what I'm doing. 99.9% of the time is purely gut instinct. And you just go and go and go and go and you hope you make the right decisions. And that is terrifying and also exhilarating at the same time. And I think that's probably my favorite part and also my least favorite part at the same time. Yeah, I think the entrepreneurs that make it in the long run, they love the thrill of the game, right? Like you talk about being an athlete, right? Like it's not just about scoring the goals, but it's the game. And I'm the kind of person that loves the game of business and loves the challenge of it because to what your point exactly, right? If 99% of the time we feel like we have no idea what we're doing, what we both have in our pocket as the 1% still is actually probably a lot more than most. Do you agree? I would say so. Because like all those life experiences kind of like compound and dogpile on each other and then end up being relevant. So like you're wearing many hats and you're having to pull things out of crazy experiences or things that have happened in your past. And then all of a sudden things like click and come together and make sense. Is this making sense to you? Does this feel like I'm on the right path here. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, yeah, I just like I look at what I do in a day to day and then I look at like what I would be doing if I was working for somebody else. And it's just crazy. Like, you know, we're actually we're doing a launch tonight and today I have made TikToks that I shoot, edit and do everything myself. I do all of our email marketing, so I wrote all the copy for that. I do all the graphics. I sent that all out. I got the basically doing all the analytics and all of that side of my own social media and the business social media. I designed the jeans. I'm working on the production management. Like no one says that you're going to be doing these things. It's just like, oh, you're a founder. And that's why I don't even put a title on anything anymore. Like, oh, what are you? I don't need a title. Who knows? (laughs) I am what I need to be in that moment. And yeah, it's fun and exhausting and it'll all be worth it. Let's get into the nitty gritty with the design stuff. So you say that you have a big role in helping to design the jeans. Obviously, you've got a pretty heavy hand, I would guess, in the way that this brand has come about. What are some of the things you've learned about building your brand from a design sensibility standpoint? And how do you kind of bring that into the design of the fashion? Because I'm always interested in that link, right? Like when clients come to me and they're like, I have this company and I do this thing and this is my superpower. I'm always trying to like harness that and harvest that and get that out of them to then reflect in the brand. How do you feel like the two things relate to one another, the brand and the end product? Yeah, I mean, 
That's a great question. I am so passionate about branding. And like this brand is 100% unapologetically the inner workings of my mind. And I told my co-founders, I was like, the only way I do this is if you give me complete and utter free reign on all of this, because I don't have a method. I don't really know how it happens, but I know like deep down to my core, what will sell. And I know what people want to see and I know what looks good and it doesn't actually have any science to it, but it works. And so that was like the core of it was what is the passion that I have behind the genes and then how do I feel about it and how would I communicate that? Because I have to be the one that's communicating it because we don't sell on any other channel other than my personal TikTok. It's just me walking around telling my story. And so if they don't go hand in hand, you know, we don't run ads, we don't do anything. It's just, hey, watch me do this thing. And if you want to buy the thing that I'm making, you can do that. And so I wanted it to feel like there's never a change between you on TikTok watching me talk about it. And then you end up on the website and you're reading my copy and you're like, you can hear me reading it. Okay. Yes. I resonate with this completely. The best compliment I ever got was someone telling me they read my website and they could hear it in my voice. And I was like, hell yeah, that means it's working because it's not for everybody, but for the people that it is for, it clicks, right? So it's that extension of the experience. Do you feel like now more than ever, the brand is bleeding into the product? that you buy the product so then you can talk about the brand. Because I feel like that would be an instance of your brand. I've got to imagine that the people that are buying your jeans are wanting a reason to then talk about the story. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge thing. I would say it's 70% of the reason that people are buying right now is just that we kind of got dubbed like the TikTok gene because you know we did like 50 million views in you know like a crazy short period of time and everyone knew about it. And so, yeah, there's tons of people for better and for worse. I mean, we had a kind of a rough start and we had some horrible UGC just generated as a result. And it was like a nightmare because everyone wants to buy the TikTok gene to talk about it on TikTok. And so, you know, the first couple of rounds, it was terrifying. But now we're at this point where like, I know almost all of our customers by name. People pop into, you know, my comment sections and I can reply to their comments and be like, yeah, how's, you know, so-and-so doing because of that's how tight we've become. And so as a result, being an extension of the brand and now these people kind of being an extension of me in the sense of kind of being friends with them has kind of created this full circle effect where really the only word, and it gets thrown around a lot by corporations kind of, I don't think in a good way, but the only way to kind of express it is it's a community brand. And that's what we designed it. We designed it to be 100% community driven. And as a result, people feel like they have a say. And so they want to see, you know, what happened with that comment that they gave. They say, hey, can you change this? And I'm like, yeah, sure, I can change that. And then they want to buy it and see it. I literally wish I could rewind and have you standing over my shoulder literally an hour ago because (laughs) I just had this conversation with a client. She has a subscription box service. She got some feedback. Let's call it like, a thousand people that have subscribed. There's, I don't know her exact numbers, but they've got a thousand subscribers to the subscription box service for a specific community. And she said she got 10 DMs of people saying that they didn't like the items of the last box. And I said, okay, so is the 10 DMs the reflection of the full thousand of customers? But are you creating any kind of community for those thousand people to leave their input? Because if you don't have the community, people will be invested in the result when they feel like they have a part of the process or when they feel connected and giving input, like you just said, 
you want them to number one, try them on and give them a review, but you want them to be included in the decisions, the design decisions of the products that they buy. And I think that really is the contrast between kind of this new wave entrepreneurship versus a Gap or Levi's, right? Like in your industry, at least with fashion, it's like, you can't just go to Levi's and say, I'd really like it to look like this now. <laughs> like They're not going to no. take that into consideration. But the beauty of social media and this community-based branding, I think is hitting the nail on the head. How has the community stuff changed your mindset? Like you're sitting down to design your next collection or drop or whatever. How much audience input do you let infiltrate your own design decisions? Because even just a few minutes ago, you were saying, I've got full creative control. I see the vision in my head. What's the split? Is it 75-25? Is it 50-50? What do you think? 100% creative decisions can end up being made by the community. Really? Okay, this is a hot take. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's the core of what makes us different. And it comes back to, like you just said, for the first time ever, people have access to brands and access to, it's not like a celebrity brand where, you know, you can't tell like a Kim Kardashian anything because you're never going to get a hold of them. You know, not that I'm anywhere near on the same level of stardom and that at any sense of it. But genuinely, people send me a DM and be like, hey, I have this idea and you should consider it. And I'm like, sure. And I put it on a board. And like, that's a part of it because we have that loop. And a big thing is, I don't want that ever to change. You know, no matter if over the next year we gain five or 10 million followers, to me, fashion has always been a one way conversation. A brand goes, Hey, we made this collection. Look at this celebrity wearing it. You want this. And everyone goes, Ooh, ah, I want this. And I don't think that works. I think that we should be making the things that people actually want and people do actually know what they want. And there's been this big kind of thing with designers for a long time, like, ah, oh, people don't know what they want. And if you give people too much freedom, they're going to tell you too many things. And yeah, of course, it's up to me to make sure that it comes within reason. And it's up to me to understand how my production works and what's feasible and what's not feasible and being able to set boundaries. But if something falls within the box, I'll do it. Okay, so walk us through that process. You get a piece of feedback. You said it goes onto a board. How do you like organize, sift through, sort through these like crowdsourced ideas? So typically, for example, on our first gene, I had 700,000 form replies. Oh my gosh. So I can't read them all. It's like data that is just, it's crazy. So we basically, if it's that type of data, just massive amounts of it. We run it through a data scraping algorithm that pulls keywords and we look for trends first. And so if we see like a lot of people asking for the same things, okay, we know that's a big direction. And then we'll kind of dive deeper into looking at, okay, these a thousand entries, you know, don't fall into any category. Let's go through them. And we just try to monitor those keywords and monitor the direction of kind of where people's heads are at with things. We get a lot of things that are just like, you know, people want the genes to cure cancer and it's just not possible. I wish it was. I really, really do. That would be fantastic. And we have to say to a lot of people, like, I'm sorry, that's physically not possible. But we basically try and break everything down to like, what's feasible? What's feasible, but it would add cost? What's feasible, but it would add time or some sort of complexity or limitation? And then what can we not do? And then from there, we'll even put it out to the community again and be like, yeah, we can make this, but it's going to be more expensive. And then sometimes immediately it drops off and people are like, ah, nah, don't worry about it. Or sometimes it's like, yeah, let's do it. I'll buy it. Can you give some examples of things like that that you've done before? Like, give us kind of the elevator pitch for the jeans to start. And then 
maybe run us through a few scenarios of like, these are recommendations that we actually implemented. And here's an example of one that was like, yeah, nice try, but no chance. Sure. Yeah. I mean, as a whole, we basically make a variety of different cuts of genes. The thing that kind of separates us is because they're made to order, we have a much larger size set. We have about 100 sizes, whereas most fashion brands have about eight or nine. And so sizing was kind of the core to make sure that we get like the near tailored fix. We can't make them made to measure. It would cost way too much money to make thousands of, you know, each individual genes. But we get within about half an inch of everyone's measurements to kind of what a tailor would be. So that's kind of step one. From there, it became kind of features. And so, for example, we had a lot of people that were like, hey, we want to do like an adjustable waistband. I want to be able to bring them in or out, depending upon if I gain some weight or I lose some weight. And so we explored some options, you know, the way that kids' genes work and on the interior didn't really work, kind of clunky. We tried one on the outside, also kind of clunky. We tried like a snap system on the outside. That one actually won. And we put that into production. It kind of didn't really work the way that we wanted it to. So we pulled it. But people were like, okay, cool, what's next? And then now we've proposed another one. We've said, hey, yeah, we can do the same thing. But rather than using snaps, we have to use buttons. So it's going to be a little bit clunky if you wear a belt, but we can do that. And if we do do that, it's going to be five extra dollars. Is that cool? Everyone's like, yeah, do it. So the next time we do them, we'll do that. And so, you know, that's kind of how that loop benefits our design process. And in some cases, we've had things where you know, people have said like, hey, you know, we want an extra pocket inside the pocket. And I've been like, sure, but then you're going to have this big, like clumpy thing on the outside. Are you cool with that? And immediately they're like, no. And I'm like, well, I can't make fabric disappear. So what would you like? Right. Then you need to carry a bag. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Then it's no longer a gene. (laughs) Okay. Interesting. And then so I've been like, what about cargo pockets? And then people are like, yeah, okay, sure, let's do that. Now you have a cargo gene. So, you know, that's big part of kind of the design process on the gene side. The branding side was more what I was kind of referring to. And I said, creative control that I kind of don't let touch. That makes sense. Okay, so let's say cargo pockets gets approved by the audience. You now are tasked with making that come to fruition. Who is kind of in your line of command? Who are the partners that you're working with to help actually take an idea from an audience-generated idea to actually an implementable feature that people can actually go shop? Because there's got to be a lot of steps between point A and point Z. Yeah. I mean, right now I'm doing almost all of them. (laughs) Yeah. No, you're crazy for that. So I basically, I take the ideas, I sketch them out, and I start with a rough sketch, and then I'll bring them to... Basically, previously, we were using other manufacturers. Now we have our own manufacturers. So I'll bring them to our pattern makers and basically be like, this is my idea. Is it possible? And then then usually they'll say, no, that's insane. Don't do that. And I'll say, well, I need you to try it anyway. And, you know, they'll say, okay, sure, fair enough. And I'll hand them the sketches. They'll turn them into like feasible patterns that we can actually cut and sew and make. And then basically we'll hand them over to the production people. They'll make the first sample. They'll bring them to me. From there, I'll take photos of them. I'll try them. We have basically a small test community. Sometimes we'll send test, you know, genes to people and be like, let me know if you hate them. And, you know, from there, we receive all of that feedback again, back to sketching, make adjustments. And then usually by the second iteration, that's when we're putting it out on like TikTok or another platform and saying, hey, do you want this? And from there, then it gets to the point where we're like, okay, this is how we would cost it out. This is what it would look like. And then The crazy thing is we can do that entire cycle in about four days. What? Yeah. What? Okay. 
Wow, my mind is blown because I have clients that were working on packaging designs and product design. They're working with manufacturers overseas. We've got to get like granted, they're dealing with like glass and things that are a little bit more cup. They're not like soft goods, but the packaging and the number of drafts that we go to to make the thing perfect. And it hasn't even launched yet. This one thing I'm thinking of in particular, we've been working on for a year and a half. So the fact that you just said four days (laughs) really blows my mind. Has it always been four days or have you just simplified everything down and come up with a process that's just turnkey like that? Because I basically told my partners from day one, I need 100% creative freedom. I don't get approvals from anybody. And so the reality is that like, I'll give you an example. Eight days ago, I called up my partner who's, he's basically our tech guy. And I said, hey, do you think it would be cool if we had a customizer on the website, like a configurator where people could come on and they could like pick the different types of jeans and then pick the colors and then pick the buttons and then pick these things and they could see it rendered in front of them. He's like, yeah, that would be awesome. And I'm like, awesome. Do you think we could have it for launch? And he's like, what launch? And I'm like, the one on Monday. And so in seven days. Oh my God. <laughs> As a designer, I would murder you. I would actually kill you. <laughs> yeah, 100%. In seven days, we produced about 30 samples, three of which are jeans that we've never made before. Brought them all to photography, had them all shot photoshopped all of the options for about 2000 different variants, loaded them into a configurator, made all the marketing campaigns, all the social campaigns, and all the packaging, everything is all done and ready to go. And we'll go live in about three hours. So do you sleep? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, no sleeping. That's insanity. But also it makes so much sense. And I think that that's one of those instances where it's a trust your gut moment where you're like, I know that this is going to bring so much value to our audience. Like I imagine it kind of going online and ordering like, a custom car, right? Like you can pick your trim kit, you can pick your interiors, you can pick, do you want the upgraded sound system or not? And I think that that's like a consumer experience. Again, that's really going to set you apart from not only your competition, but further catapult you guys into being more of that new industry standard. Okay, interesting. So now I'm also imagining that your audience is going to figure this out by going on your site. And then they're going to also make TikToks about it. Talk to us about like the UGC, like feedback loop, how important that is the actual brand visibility. You know, I'm a little early to answer that question simply because we were on a launch model previously. And so we had basically, we had had like a big launch and then kind of a big period of downtime and then a big launch, a big period of downtime. And so we're just now getting to like that always open model. And so I actually don't know the answer to that question. We'll get spikes. Like I can answer that in terms of traffic and probably intent to purchase. You just see it's massive, positively and negatively. And we see big spikes in following randomly. I'll wake up one morning and be like, why did I gain 5,000 followers last night? This is really strange. And then we'll open it up and be like, oh, nice. Someone got their jeans and they were really happy about it. Awesome. And so I anticipate it being like the cornerstone of the future because that's like a huge, huge, huge part of what we need to be is that like community brand. But I also... I don't ever talk about, I don't ever talk about the product directly. Like I don't say buy this thing. I'll never tell someone to buy this. It's like, Hey, I'm doing this thing. This is my factory. This is my process. This is what I'm working on. This is what I'm passionate about. This is the thing. And we let them make that decision. So having UGC and other people being like, buy this thing is really important. Yes. Okay. I'm listening to this book right now called hundred million dollar leads. Do you know this book? Is that Alex? Ramosi? Yes. His website is acquisition.com. He like started with a bunch of gyms, 
great book. I can't listen to it though, because I'll be out on a dog walk and I need to like pause and stop and like write down what I learned and then keep going. Like it's one of these books that I'm going to have to listen to 14 times because he talked so much about how marketing, especially online marketing, people have gotten so lost in the sauce of like, buy this instead of saying, here's how I made blah, 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 blah happen. Because people are less interested in being told and they're more interested in being entertained and then like learning the thing that they're actually being told to do indirectly and then actually creating that relationship. So it's very similar to how I've run my business. Instead of saying, work with us for brand design, I make case study videos. And so I do brand design in 60 seconds and I'm like, here's this brand and here's why their new logo rocks because we did this, we paid attention to this audience person, we did da, 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 da. And then here's how it actually got implemented which like serves a great purpose for my audience because then those are the videos that I send to potential clients being like, oh, you have a luxury Airbnb. Here's five examples of ones that we've already done. So it really came out of like almost like a laziness of like wanting to have the videos to be able to send to people. But it does a great job of educating because it puts the consumer in the mindset of if you can do that for that person. Can you do that for me? And then it solves that question in their mind because like, of course you can. A hundred percent. Are there kind of people that you look to or creators or brands that you look to as kind of a North Star or are you really truly like lone ranger, lone wolf out here? <laughs> Not because I think I'm like doing anything particularly, you know, special or different or anything and more just because it's just kind of working. And so I haven't really ever gone straight back to the drawing board and been like, who else is doing what? You know, people say all the time, like, who are your competitors? And I say, I have no idea. And that's actually, that's just not my space. Some of my other partners worry about that. But it really, for us, it's just been like, we have this really solid group of people that really like what we're doing, that buy the things that we're doing, that give us this feedback, that like the content that we're making. And so we just kind of keep doing it. Now, I have plans for the inevitable future when we do start to kind of expand into the point where people are showing up on our website and they've never seen a TikTok video. And so now it needs to stand alone. And, you know, it needs to be a standalone brand and not like kind of a connection to this creator that I saw this video of. It's way easier to explain to someone why something is cool in a three minute TikTok than in like three lines of copy. And so that's the process right now. That's like my next big challenge. And that's why we've done kind of a big rebrand recently. New website, new branding, new everything, because it's like, okay, it needs to stand alone. And we had a certain level of credit with people in the past where it was like, oh, they're new and, you know, they don't completely have it. You know, they don't have their shit together yet, but, you know, we can deal with it. But now it's like, okay, no, we've been in business for a year. We've sold like 10,000 pairs of jeans. We know what we're doing. We no longer have that credit where someone's going to come on and be like, why is this super basic Shopify template the same template from last year? Right. Okay. But I noticed this is also like, it's a pendulum a little bit, right? So you start as the person, like I think all entrepreneurs kind of have this story to some extent. You start as the person with the idea or the skill that starts getting like, you start getting busy, right? You're like, oh, maybe I'm onto something. I'm onto something. Then the pendulum swings to, okay, now I'm a brand. But then with these big brands, what we notice is like, it has to swing back to that founder story, the origin, the thought process, like where the founders are really positioning themselves. Like, yeah, they may have a team now, but you have to position yourself as that thought leader person. And the other thing I learned from this $100 million leads book is he talks about how important it is for the founder to continue to create content that's free content, that's pulling people in and solving the problem, right? Or drawing them to the brand. And he talks about doing it. And this will be an interesting exercise. I want you to kind of follow my logic here. 
he talks about how it's important to tell stories from different time periods of your process. So he talks about the importance of doing, like talking about stories from far past, recent past, current, near future, far future. So because each of those temporal bookmarkers, you could call them, are giving people insights into like how you do what you do well and how you are going to continue to do well on behalf of the brand. So to throw it back to you, can you tell us maybe a bit about something or a memory or a story from like way back when to recent back when to current to future to far future? Like, I know people always ask that question, like, where do you see yourself in three to five years? But let's go backwards too. Like, let's talk about all of that. I don't know how you are going to be able to say that in like a few sentences, but (laughs) it's worth a try. Maybe you can kind of walk us through what's something from like way back when that's come up recently for you that you're like, oh, I didn't realize that those two things were connected. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all connected. And because genuinely going back to the, I have no idea what I'm doing, there were so many crazy times on this journey where I'm a very big boots on the ground type of person in the sense where it's like, hey, where are we going to manufacture? I don't know. I'm just going to go and get on an airplane and I'm going to go and just meet people and talk about it and see what we do. And so in the early stages, we knew people wanted us to make jeans. I didn't know how I was going to make them, where I was going to make them. I didn't know anything about making jeans. I knew nothing. So I just got on an airplane and went to India and I just started going to factories. And, you know, I had this crazy story because it was the middle of COVID and I got stuck and I had to sleep overnight in a metro station in New Delhi because of the COVID restrictions because I couldn't leave the metro station because my plane ticket, I didn't have the right COVID test. And so I remember having this moment staring up at like the night sky sitting there and being like what am i doing why am i here (laughs) i am on the floor of a metro station in new delhi for what and then recently being here now i've been in turkey now for three months building a factory and like i feel like i'm on you know tatooine sometimes and you know i come out and i'm just like it's the same it's the same and in that moment, I thought, you know, when I was staring at that nice guy in India, I thought at some point it's all going to click and it's going to make sense. And then recently it's come down to, it's like, no, it's not. It's always going to feel like this and that's okay. Ooh. And that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And days sometimes I'm like, I don't speak the language. I don't know what's going on. I just work and I do my thing. And tomorrow is a complete unknown, but it's a good unknown. Well, and you're trusting that muscle, right? Just like when you go to the gym and you're doing, I don't know, you're doing squats. Like, okay, I know that the next time I do this, I'm going to have the capability to push myself because I've pushed myself before and it's worked out. I've also pushed myself and gotten injured. I know how to avoid an injury because I've experienced it. And I think that's the thing about entrepreneurship that I think gets a little glossed over is like you see the wins and you see the highlight reel and you see the person that's crushing it. And like you forget, it's like new level, new devil. Totally. You up level. And then the thing that you never knew was going to be a struggle is all of a sudden a struggle, but that's the game of it is the struggle. You know, you hear a lot of people try and compare yeah. entrepreneurship in any variety to, you know, like sports and to different kind of different things. And I think there's only one comparison that to me has ever felt the same and it's playing roulette. Oh, okay. Tell me. Like the highs are ridiculously high. You take a bunch of money, you put it on a number, the wheel spins, it hits the number and you are over the moon and you feel invincible and there's nothing that can stop you. And you are now a dangerous man with some money in your pocket, as Bruno Mars would say. And you know, you're like, wow, this is awesome. And what do you normally do? You normally double down. Most people do, right? They're normally like, I have money now, let me do it again. And most time people lose. 
But at the same time, it's about understanding, okay, I won a little bit here. What's next? What am I going to do next? And the best entrepreneurs are the ones that are totally fine with losing. Yes. Because they completely understand what the worst possible outcome is. And it's controlled variable. They're controlled losses. And that's the only way that I've ever been able to see it is like the people who put everything on black all the time, hope and pray are the startups that don't make it. The founders that put everything on black win, but then know, okay, I'm going to take some of that money. I'm going to put it back in my pocket. I'm going to take some of that money. I'm going to put it here. I'm going to do this, 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 this. That's the only way it works. And so it's exactly this whole thing. It's just like, you know what? I wake up every day and I put my money on black, but I also know how much is in my pocket. I also know how much I'm going to maybe win. And if I do win, I know what I'm going to do with it. And that's the only way that works for me. And fail fast. Fail fast because you're going to learn so much in your failures. And I think this is something that I went to dinner with my neighbor recently and she works a corporate job and she's like, do you ever hate your job? And I was like, of course, like, of course, of course, there's days where you feel like everything's going wrong and this client's upset and that didn't work and this contract fell through. Of course, there are those days. Those are the things that typically get shared, but that's part of it. And I think there's this misconception that it's always going to be the winnings, right? So it's such an interesting dynamic because I can name on at least two hands all the things that I've done, even in the last 12 months that have epically failed. Epically. But it's also like, there's so much to be learned from that. And I think when you're running a team and you're running a brand and you're running a business, you also can't let those 10 things that flopped stop you from trying again. Agreed. And I mean, like I was just saying before, in terms of that crazy 10 day, I'm making a decision, I'm just running with it. The reality is that's how I run all the time and they don't always work and that's fine because I would rather do that 10 times and even if it works twice, we're good. But at least those other eight times, it's been like, wow, we just built something in eight days that another agency would have you know, asked us for $25,000 for and how did we iterate that so quickly and how did we you know, pull this idea out of thin air and make it happen and we get better because of it. And so when we make those decisions and we put those timelines and we do those things, I don't know if they're going to work. I hope so. But, you know, that's that. I think this analysis paralysis also really hits designers and creatives. Like I know plenty of wickedly talented artists, insanely talented artists and designers that struggle so hard because they can't get over their own insecurity of the thing not being perfect. Can you think of times where you've like launched something where you're like, God, I really wish I could have had five more days and 10 more people working on this? Products? Probably not in this because typically we know their works in progress and that's okay. And that's kind of part of the brand. Well, it's kind of what you're selling. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I feel that so hard though on media, on TikTok and things like that, you know, and it's just like, it got really bad at one point where it was just like, I would re-edit something so many times and then I would post it and it wouldn't do well. And, you know, I would delete it and I would re-edit it and I would post it and then you know, I'd get people in the comments being like, why have you reposted this four times? Being like, oh my God. Oh no. <laughs> and it took me a long time to realize not every video is going to be viral. A lot of the time there's luck involved and you can make the most perfect video in the world and it can flop and that's okay. And it took me taking a step back and being like, I'm going to look at 10 video averages and be like, how did my videos perform over 10 rather than every single one? And so, yeah, I mean, I feel it. I get it. It sucks. 
I'm happy to know that you also delete and re-edit because I do that. And I hate when I do that. But sometimes it really calls for it. Or you have like a total flub or a spelling mistake or an error. And you're like, God damn it. And it goes out. But I think that TikTok is just so much more forgiving in that way. Like it's such a unique platform because like, yes, sometimes people notice, but I think there's so much more like creativity and it feels like less parameters than some of the other social apps. Do you notice this as well? Or what drew you to like the TikTok of it all besides having the viral video that kicked you off? What keeps you coming back to that as a platform to reach your audience? It's the most positive social media I find. Like genuinely, I mean, it can destroy you just as fast. And you can get canceled pretty quickly in today's kind of environment. Typically, I mean, more often than not, when people deserve it. But at the same time, like you're saying, there's a good level of forgiveness. And there's a good level of like, people want raw content. I think you used a great word before in entertain. And people come to TikTok to be entertained. They don't become to be pitched to or sold to. And so as a result, I can fumble over my words, or I can mess up my pitch or anything like that. It's not this perfect like a YouTube or everything's like a prim perfect Nat Geo documentary. It's like, hey, look at my bagel. And you know, I'm just here. And that's what people come there for is like that raw experience. And I think that's why it's a little bit more forgiving as a whole. Do you think the other platforms are going to follow suit? Or do you really think that this is the unique kind of TikTok secret sauce? I think they can't because of the demographics, personally. TikTok has a really unique demographic of young people, but at the same time, older people. Like my mom loves TikTok. And at the same time, it's not the Facebook crowd where, you know, it's just like they're so stingy and, you know, they're on everything all the time. And so it's attracted a really interesting group of creatives, a group of, I would lean to say, even optimists. Whereas I find like on Instagram and other platforms, it's a little bit more news-based, a little bit more saturated by celebrities and everything needs to be perfect and your body needs to be photoshopped. And there's no room for that. And so I think they've just nailed it on who is on their platform and they know who their user is. I think there's also a good split on TikTok where it's perfectly appropriate to be on TikTok to just be a consumer of content instead of a creator. Like, obviously, there's still pressure to be a creator and there's so much to be gained in being a creator on TikTok. But there's so much to be learned just by like being a conscious observer and paying attention. And you can totally have a burner account on TikTok. And that's like not a faux pas. Yeah. Which is fun. I enjoy that part of it. I enjoy like the casualness of TikTok. And I think that that's the thing that stopped me from really going all in on other platforms. Like we started a YouTube channel to share the podcast episodes. And I've had on my to do list for this entire calendar year, turn the case study videos from TikTok into YouTube content. But then I'm like, oh, I don't have the right tech or I don't have the right sound equipment. I don't have the right camera that I want when really, and I know this as like giving myself my own advice. If I just recorded it with my iPhone and got it up to YouTube, I can get better at the tech. But the reason I'm not putting them on YouTube is this fear of like not having it look the way that I know that it could look. Do you get roadblocks in areas of your business? And how do you kind of overcome things that you second guess yourself about? Totally. I mean... To be honest, like I'm so much more of a YouTube creator than I am a TikTok. Really? I like, I should be. I mean, I talk so much and I struggle so much with short form. Like sometimes I'm editing things. I'm like, oh my God, this is like an eight minute video. How am I going to cut this into a TikTok? This would be a perfect vlog. But at the end of the day, it's the same thing. It's like, oh my God, the people on YouTube are so good. I know. But also with YouTube, 
we're looking at the top 10% of the everybody that's on YouTube. And that's what I think is different than the TikTok algorithm where you're going to get, I get stuff on my For You page that has four likes and zero comments and from a person that's just in their house doing a thing. Yeah. So I think that's where it lies the difference. But the to keep referencing the same book, he talks about, it's not that people's attention span has changed. It's their tolerance for boring has changed. Totally. I was like, oh, that's a solid point. I would totally agree. I've been on a lot of marketing podcasts lately and it's just like, the reason I haven't run a single ad is ads are boring. And genuinely speaking, people, if I tell them a story, if I show them a journey, if I show them an adventure, they're going to be so much more keen on everything that I'm doing rather than just like, here's an ad with a perfect model and great music and all these different things. And it works. And that's the reason that TikTok organic and creator brands and everything are exploding while traditional big box stores and all these things are dying because they're still putting up billboards and no one cares anymore. Right. Literally. Now there's always two lessons in our household growing up that I come from like a big family of entrepreneurs. And it was always that everything comes back to be a good person and do a good job. You don't have to do the best job. You don't have to be the best, but just do a good job, like deliver a quality product, a quality service and be a good person. Admit when you're wrong, overcome things, be reasonable, communicate with compassion. It's so crazy that just everything just really kind of boils back down to that. I think I have a perfect example. It's just, we technically, in essence, failed miserably in our first launch. It was like we were anticipating four or five week delivery timelines, and it took like five months. And it was a disaster. And we had a pallet of jeans get lost for two months, six or 700 customers. Oh, no. (laughs) And then when the pallet showed up, they were like destroyed and we had to remake them. And I had people that ordered in September of last year that got their jeans like this week. Oh, my gosh. And almost every single one of them has bought again, still watches content, still supports us, still loves what we're doing. And I posted a video, like my first video, I haven't posted on TikTok in a long time up until recently. My first video back was basically, hey, I'm back and I'm sorry. And here's what happened. And here's where I'm owning my mistakes. And here is what we're doing. And here are our solutions. And there's like a thousand comments of people that are like, yeah, I still don't have my jeans, but this is awesome. And I'm here for it. Let's do this. Let's do business the right way. Thank you. And I'm like, every business textbook on earth would say you're already dead. Mm-hmm. But just being transparent is turned into this like really radical thing, which is kind of sad. But at the same time, it's the ultimate, you know, thing. It's not even an act. I just completely honest. Just, this is what happened today. And sorry about that. And they love it. People love it. They're like, that's great. Thank you. Most businesses would lie. Yes. And I think it's part of human nature that we have a natural curiosity, like observing animals in the wild, or we love going and standing out front of the bakery, watching the guy hand roll the croissants. Cause like there is just this curiosity. And even if it feels mundane and boring to you as the creator to share your process, when you bring people along, they're so much more invested in the end result, right? They're so much more interested in seeing the thing that started as this end up as that. And I think that's the beauty of like, we, as this new generation of business owners, we get that opportunity to do that for free through the internet. That's crazy. Oh my gosh, so much good stuff. And so we could probably talk for forever, but it is late in Istanbul. So tell everybody where we can find you, follow you, watch some of these videos that you talked about, and then maybe even buy some jeans. 
Sure. You can come to our new website. Everything's there. It's www.slo.is. And that's that. Just check it out. All my socials are there. Everything is there. My email is there. If you'd like to send me an email, I answer everyone if they have any questions or want to talk or whatever. And yeah, there's jeans there if you'd like them too. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. And thanks everybody for listening in. Definitely hit Christian up and send him an email if you liked the episode. And we'll catch you later. Bye. Thanks for joining us for the Kiss My Aesthetic podcast. Don't forget to follow along and leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll see you in the Kiss My Aesthetic Facebook group for years and years of behind the scenes content and over 5,000 connections with fellow creatives. For show notes from today's episode, please visit mkwcreative.co slash podcast. This episode was edited by Berta Wired and theme music comes from Eliza Vera and Nathan Menard. Catch you next time.